Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with freedom through faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Hallelujah! Hello everyone everywhere. This is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Glory to God. We're so blessed that you could join us today. This is the day that the Lord has made. Amen. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Praise God. Shout amen somebody somewhere. Oh, praise you, Jesus, for this glorious day. Let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer. We've got some exciting stuff to get to. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come around your throne of grace and of mercy this day, thanking you, praising you for all that you do for us. Lord, thank you for your word this day. Thank you, Jesus, that your word is going forth over this internet into all the earth touching people's hearts, changing their lives. Lord, your word goes forth and does not return to you void. Your word accomplishes whatever you please, and it prospers wherever you send it. Father, in the name of Jesus, we give you honor, glory, and praise for all that you accomplished this day. We are your servants. We are here to be your voice. May we be led of the Holy Spirit during this service. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. Today we're going to begin studying a series on revival in America. Amen. Revival in America. It's going to be, well, we need revival in America. Praise God. What I need you to do first well, first, let's do our statement of faith. Glory to God. We haven't done that yet, have we? Praise Jesus. Repeat these words after me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And then the third day he rose again from the dead. Hallelujah. Ascended up into heaven and sits now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he shall come soon to judge the living 
and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the church is the body of Christ. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And I believe in life ever after. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Now, turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. We're going to begin looking today at Revival in America. Now, for the next few weeks, we're going to be dealing with the book of Habakkuk. And, the, like I said, the subject for today is really the strangeness of God's ways as they relate to revival from the book of Habakkuk. Now, in case you're lost, it goes like this. you got Jonah and Micah, Nahum, then Habakkuk, then Zephaniah and Haggai, and so forth. They're the minor prophets. It's the Old Testament in the Bible. Praise God. That, I mean, that's about all the directions I can give you. I can't give you a page number because people use different versions of the Bible. So I'll just give you a minute to find it since it is a small book. Amen. But Habakkuk chapter 1. Now, this is a fascinating book, though it's very brief. It's just three chapters long. Three very brief chapters at that. But it's a very, very important book when it comes to prophecy. Now today, primarily, I want to discuss chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So let's begin at verse number 1. Amen. The burden in which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even crying out unto you of violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievances? For spoiling and violence are before me. And there are those who raise up strife and contention. Therefore, the law is slack, and justice does never go forth. For the wicked does compass about the righteous. Therefore, justice goes forth perverted. That sounds pretty much like a description of the current times we live in, doesn't it? Continuing in verse 5. Behold among the nations, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days, which you will not believe, though it be told to you. This is God speaking. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible, they're dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves and their horsemen shall come from afar. They shall fly like the eagle that hastens to eat. They shall come all for violence. The set their faces is forward, and they shall gather the captives as the sand. They shall scoff at the kings and the princes, and shall be a scorn unto them, for they shall deride for every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power unto his God. Now, 
That's a very interesting portion of Scripture. We know that life is never a bed of roses, and particularly the Christian life is never a bed of roses. Amen? Even though we live the life of faith, even though our faith is very personal and very explicitly placed in the person of Jesus Christ, even though Christ is all and all, and even though he is sufficient to fill every need, life itself, the life of faith, is never just comfortable, ever. There are always problems confronting your faith. There are always problems in the Christian's life. There are always problems in the life of the Israelites. And I know that is not a popular thing to say in the age of grace in the churches and stuff. You get these smooth-talking preachers that tell you how great life is. How great it will be. If you don't have a great life, something is wrong with you. Come to our church. Everybody is blessed here. But that's not the truth. They are lying to you. I mean, when you get born again, you're defecting from Satan's army and moving into the army of his enemy, which is the army of God. Why would he continue to bless you with worldly goods when you just defected? You know, some Christians have a lot of problems and that makes them and brings them to the point of bowing their knee and accepting Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord, thinking things will get better. And initially they might. But you haven't faced a battle until you accept Jesus as your Savior. Then it seems like all hell is coming against you. The car breaks down. The washing machine quits. The kid gets kicked out of school for being in a fight. You get laid off from your job. You're overdrawn at the bank. And you think, man, life sure was better when I was just a heathen. But you see, all these things were connected to the devil and his kingdom. When you unhook from him and hook up with the kingdom of God, it takes some time to get things through the pipeline. Now, yes, there are initial healings and there are initial blessings that can take place and deliverance that can take place, but you have not yet learned how to fight the fight of faith. Amen. In a war, Say war is declared. Battles are taking place. We need replacements on the battlefield. And a young man or a young woman goes down and joins the army. They are not handed a rifle and said, go out there and fight. They have to go through a period of very intense, uncomfortable, hectic training. Eight weeks, 16 weeks, whatever it might be. And then they're sent out to a unit in the field, possibly on the battlefield. And it's called OJT, on-the-job training. Yeah, you got the basics down. But now we're going to teach you how it really works. How you can apply what you learned. They're not 
graduated from basic training and given command of a division in place of a general. No, they have to learn their place. They have to learn the job duties and responsibilities of a private. As they get those downs, they're promoted to private first class. You're a little better. You, 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 know, you can supervise the privates that are just coming in. And then you're promoted to corporal or E4 or spec 4, whatever the case may be. And you're given a little bit more responsibility and start training for a leadership position. Then you're promoted to sergeant and staff sergeant on up. But you are never taken as a recruit, taken off the bus, put stars on your shoulders, and sent off to lead 10,000 men in a battle. That's just not going to happen. But yet we believe that when you receive Jesus as your Savior, suddenly you should be a general of the faith. And it's not going to happen that way. Amen? And that's the things Habakkuk is writing about here. Amen? There were problems in the mind of Habakkuk as he wrote this prophecy. And the reason there are always problems is because there is always an adversary, Satan, whose desire is to tempt us and to sin. And so there are problems in this life. Various temptations are presented to our minds as Christians. And Satan's desire and presenting these temptations is to undermine our faith, to cause us to doubt God, or to doubt God's love for us, or to doubt that God even cares. And surprisingly enough, this is true of Christians. They doubt whether God even cares. Many of us, as I said, find coming into our lives almost every single day, problems, problems that we can't understand, sorrows that we can't cope with, temptations that tend to make us doubt God and wonder if we are really saved, or wonder if God really cares about us at all, or wonder if the faith that we are trying to hold to so strongly could really have a failing or a weak link in it somewhere. And so, if Satan tempts us to doubt God and to undermine our faith, and then Satan tempts the unsaved by making Christianity look ridiculous, you know, folks, it's an old, old tactic. He has no new tricks up his sleeve. This is the same tactic that he's used to present a ridiculous Christianity to the world to try and make Christianity look stupid, stupid for years. He's done it throughout all of history. Today, one of the main anxieties pushed off on the world by Satan is the problem of history. That's what we want to talk about today in this prophecy in Habakkuk that we just read, is the problem of history. You see, today, people are perplexed with the historical situation going on around them. You look around and you wonder, why is it like this? I mean, now up until about 1914, 1915, we had a different problem. It wasn't the problem of history that was bugging everyone. It was the problem of science. 
in the 19th century and in the centuries before that, the biggest problem was that science was purported to be a threat to the validity of Christianity. You had, during those centuries, critics who said that the Bible was scientifically wrong. Wrong and in great error is just messed up, lies and wrong, etc., etc., etc. And they would point to things like the Bible statement that the sun stood still and various things like that and say it's impossible. The Bible is scientifically impossible. And so Christianity was always arguing, wrangling with science. And if you ever see a book on Christianity as science, the great books, the great traditional books, were all books written at the very beginning of this century and the latter part of the last century. And I'm, I'm not, when I say this century, I'm dating myself here. I'm not talking about from 2000 on. I'm talking about the 1900s, okay? So when I say this century, I'm thinking, you know, to me, I'm st- I'm old enough where I'm still living in the last century. Glory to God. But what, I, what I'm referring to, early 1900s to the late 1800s. Amen. Don't go writing me a letter and saying this century is began in 2000. We're in the 22nd century now or whatever you want to say. I don't care. Don't write me about that. Okay. I'm clearing this up. In my mind, when I say this century, I'm still thinking the 1900s. Sorry if that offends you. That's just me. Glory to God. Amen. Anyway, where was I at? <laughs> the problem is history. Amen. Oh, glory to God. Today's problem is history. And it goes like this. How can a God like the one you claim to believe on in the Bible can let the world get in the message in right now? Or, for that matter, how can the God that you claim is the God of the Bible let the church get in the mess that the church is in right now? Or, how can a good, loving God allow all these bad things to take place in the world? And so, we have the problem of history. And if you look around the world, the world is messed up. Famine, war, suffering, sorrow, disease, death. These are all constant problems all around the world. And I'm telling you, if you look at the church, it's in a sad shape as well. You're going to find the church, for the most part, is a mess. There's apostasy, liberalism, a denial of the authenticity of Scripture, a denial of verbal inspiration, a denial of the deity of Jesus, a substitution of every inane type of philosophy imaginable. I mean, there's no question about the fact that this world is messed up. There's no question about the fact that the church is especially messed up. The church is a mess. And so the issue today is if God is really God, why is this world so messed up? Why is God allowing it and why are we having to put up with it? That's the issue today. And it's the great problem 
that's thrown up in the face of Christianity everywhere today, the problem of history. And that's what we want to deal with today, because in this century, and again, I'm talking about the century in which we're living, as primarily right now, this decade, many Christians find their faith being shaken. Many find them sort of rattling at their roots because of the course of events in the world today. And other people who are not Christians, who are not saved, and who have no faith, they find it very, very difficult to accept that the God of your Bible, the God of our Bible, is really true and in charge of everything in view of the history that's going on in the world today. Devastating world problems that are on the front pages of the newspapers and on the evening news every night, they find it very difficult to reconcile with a loving, caring God as he is presented in the Bible. And really, there's no excuse for this on the part of a Christian. And there's absolutely no excuse for rejection on the part of a non-Christian because the plain teaching of the Bible sets it all straight. Amen. You know, Dr. David Reagan said, uh, if you're trying to, let's see if I can remember what he said, if you're trying to make sense of the Bible, just seek what makes sense and don't, seek any other sense or else you're left with nonsense or something along those lines. Glory to God. But the Bible is the beginning and the end all of all faith. You cannot have faith in something outside of the Bible. Your faith has to remain 100% in the Word of God. Even when all hell breaks loose around you, you need to keep your faith in what the Word of God says, even if it costs you your life. Jesus came and died for you to have that privilege of making a choice of what you are going to believe. And if you believe something the world says and reject what the Bible says, you have rejected the word of God. John chapter 1, that word is who was made flesh, Jesus. So if you reject the word of God, you are rejecting Jesus, despite what the world has to say. You can't have it both ways. A lot of Christians are trying to walk this little tightrope where they're believing and they're they're believing they're saved, they're believing that they're they're living according to God's will, but you know, we don't want to get too far over in that Bible stuff because then some people won't like it. But we don't want to go over completely into the world because then, you know, the Christians will say we're not saved. And, you know, we want to keep God happy. We got to stay in this little narrow spot here. Folks, Jesus didn't come and walk a tightrope. He came and he preached and he demonstrated the power of God. Then he died 
publicly for all to see and was buried. And then, as Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says, he demonstrated the power of God by being raised from the dead. Glory to God. There is nothing, not one thing in this world that I want, that I need, that I desire to have if it makes me violate the word of God. Period. If it costs me my life, I will not reject the word of God. You see on the evening news, people being held by ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all these groups, these Muslim terrorist groups, and they're saying, if you don't reject Christ, we will kill you. Right here, right now. Some reject Christ and recite the pledge of the Muslim faith, you know, uh, Muhammad's the prophet of God and all that other crap. And then they're executed anyway. So their last breath is rejecting faith in Christ Jesus. Those who hold to their faith, are possibly tortured. Women are raped and mutilated. But yet there are still Christians in this land that despite all that these non-believers do to them, they refuse to reject Christ. And when they die, they are ushered into the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and told, well done, my faithful servant. Praise be to God. Hallelujah. All right, I got a little off track there. Amen. There is no reason for a Christian to be perplexed about the relationship between the Bible and science. We are talking about science here. It's a dead issue, really. It has been proven over and over and over and over and over and over again by archaeological digs that there is nothing more true in all the universe than the statements that the Bible teaches on science and history. Amen. The Bible has not made scientific error, and it does not make scientific error. What do you mean, Brother Bob? Well, now the history problem seems to be the issue. But there really shouldn't be any perplexity about that either because the Bible deals just as explicitly with that as it does with the problem of science. Now, I know that some people are going to write me and say they think the Bible's just a textbook on salvation. That's the beginning and the ending of it. But that's not true. Salvation is just one thread that runs through the entire theme of the Bible from front to back. The Bible's purpose, the Word of God's purpose, is the destiny of the people living in the world. If all the Bible cared about was salvation, then that's all it would preach about. It wouldn't deal with the fall of man. It wouldn't deal with hell. It wouldn't deal with all the things that have to do with living in a godless world. The Bible is 
infinitely more than a textbook on salvation. Now, it is that. That's true. I mean, that's a major component of it. But it is much more than that. The Word of God in total revelation is concerned with the entire world. The condition of the world and humanity and the destiny of humanity. The Bible, if you so please, has a very profound philosophy of history and a very distinctive worldview. Amen? Careful reading and study of the Word of God will show this to you. If you just peruse your favorite psalm or reread over and over and over again the Sermon on the Mount or flip around and find your favorite gospel and read it every day, you might not get it. But if you carefully conduct a study of the Word of God, you will find that everything that occurs in history has a place in God's divine plan. The Word of God then is concerned with the whole spectrum of the world and its destiny and the people's destiny that live in it. Amen? Okay, I said all this to get to this point. Glory to God. Habakkuk is an illustration of this problem because the prophet treats the problem of history in his book and he treats it in a fascinating way. Now remember, we're talking about revival in America. Okay, and you're going to see America in this prophecy. You're going to see the condition of America. You're going to see the condition of the church in America. And this is just serving today as the introductory lesson, glory to God, to all of this. Habakkuk does not treat it from an academic standpoint. He doesn't treat this from a theoretic standpoint. He doesn't treat it from a philosophical standpoint. He treats it from the personal perplexity in his own life. He has questions and he wants God to answer them. He says, basically, God, I can't figure out why all this is happening. If you are who you say you are, why is it like this? How many of us have ever asked that question. Amen? So, you know, I mean, like I said, the car breaks down and the washing machine breaks down and you're getting laid off and you're overdrawn to the bank and you cry out, God, why is this happening? See, you're just like Habakkuk. And you have an absolute right to come to the Almighty God and ask for wisdom and understanding. Of what's going on. But then you have to have the faith, you have to have the confidence that God will reveal it to you. Sometimes he uses things that you don't anticipate. He could send someone to talk to you. He could send a donkey to talk to you. Amen. God used the donkey to talk to the prophet. Glory to God. He can send you to a part of the Bible you don't normally read, like the book of Habakkuk. 
You see, the Gospels are good, but it's not the entirety of the Word of God. The Gospels is just the testimony of a few of the apostles about what the historical facts were about Jesus when he was in the earth. And each gospel talks about a different facet of what Jesus was doing here. Paul's letters that make up two-thirds of the New Testament are answering questions that some Christians and churches had about living by faith. The book of Revelation was given to John so that the believers could understand when the end times were beginning. The Old Testament is made up so we can see where we came from in our faith and the reason Jesus had to die in our place. So there's different facets of what's going on. So when you're reading and you're praying to God, why are these things happening? He may lead you to read the book of Genesis. He may lead you to read the book of Jonah. He may lead you to read the book of Habakkuk or any other gospel, glory to God, or any other chapter or book in the Bible. So I want to join now with Habakkuk in the experience he is facing right now. He's troubled by what he is seeing in the world around him, just as we are troubled in what we see going on in the world around us. Amen? Well, what was the situation in Habakkuk's day? Well, the situation in his day was that Israel, his nation, was backslidden. That's nothing new for Israel, just as it's nothing new for the United States. Israel had turned from serving God. Israel had forgotten God. Israel was completely given over to idolatry. And that begins, as we read in verse 2, the real cry of his heart as he looks at Israel and says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? How long shall I even cry unto you of the violence, and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance, for spoiling and violence are before me? And there are those who raise up strife and confusion. Therefore the law is slack, and justice does not go forth, for the wicked has surrounded about the righteous. Therefore justice goes forth perverted. We could say almost the same thing today. Amen? I mean, this is a horrible picture of Israel that Habakkuk is giving. And the prayer that he is praying is, God, they're in a mess. I've been asking you and asking you and crying out for you to change it. Why don't you do something about this mess? How long do I have to cry to you and you won't listen? There's many people that can look at the United States and say the same exact thing. This is a horrible picture of Israel, and it's a horrible picture of the United States today. And the prayer that Habakkuk is praying is, God, we're messed up. I've been asking you, and asking you, and asking you, and asking you, crying out for you, 
to change it. Why don't you do something about this? How long do I have to cry and you won't listen? What a situation. Sin and immorality were rampant. Those in government were slack and indifferent, just like today. And those who applied the law did it dishonestly. Justice was nowhere to be found. Bribes were rampant, just like today. Only today we call it political donations. Habakkuk, a man of God, has had his heart just bleeding for God as to why God allows this. And this, that's the condition that Israel was in. Lawlessness, sin, immorality, and such as that. Just like we are living in today. As we look around the world, we see the same characteristics exactly as in Habakkuk's day. In verse 2, he says, there is violence. Well, that's a watchword for today. Every single day you hear about violence on the news. You know, when I was growing up and a murder was committed, even in two towns over, it made the evening news, it made the newspapers. It was a big deal. Now, every day, it's not a matter of if someone was murdered this day, but how many? Four, five, you know, Chicago, 10, 20, in one day. Violence is everywhere. In verse 3, it says, there's iniquity. There's violence, again. There are those who raise up strife and contention. There are revolutionaries stirring up trouble. Verse 4, therefore the law is slack. There's no justice fairly and honestly administered. Law and authority are not dealing fairly and honestly. That's some of the accusations being hurled around today, isn't it? It's difficult to find justice in this world, just as it was in the days of Habakkuk. And so Habakkuk is perplexed by the situation he's facing, and he cries out to God and says, God, if you are who you say you are, why are you letting this happen? And we stand by in our country today, and we can look at God with almost the same quizzical expression in our brain and say, God, why is this happening? Why is it that we as Christians are constantly crying out about these things and there's nothing changing? It only gets worse. So the situation wasn't very good. And if you think that situation was bad, wait until you get a hold of the solution. In verses 5 to 11, Habakkuk gets probably the most unusual answer to prayer that anybody ever got. Amen. If you think God's inactivity was perplexing, just notice his activity. Habakkuk was perplexed in verses 2 to 4, but it must have been nothing compared to what's going on in his head after he hears God's answer. Glory to God. 
Verse 5, God says, Behold, among the nations in regard. God doesn't say, I'm going to use your prayer and everything's going to be sunshine and roses. No, he says, And wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days. First of all, I'm going to work a work which you will not believe even though it's told to you. And here's the answer to Habakkuk's prayer. Verse 6. For lo, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and nasty and hasty nation, which will march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not there. They are terrible. They are dreadful. Their judgment, their dignity shall proceed from themselves. Then he describes their horses and the swiftness which they're going to conquer. Their horsemen are going to cover the land. They're going to come swiftly like an eagle. In verse 9, they're coming to do violence. They've set their faces forward. That means they're not going to be distracted. They've got a goal and an objective in mind, and they're going to go at it and not stop till they get there. It says they shall gather the captives as the sand. They're going to pick up the whole nation of Israel. They'll scoff and laugh at the kings and princes. They'll deride every stronghold. They're going to heap dust and take it. And then in verse 11, they're going to glory and think they did it because of the power of their own God. Listen to this. Basically, God answered Habakkuk's prayer by saying, you think it's bad now? You ain't seen nothing yet. That is an unusual answer. Habakkuk's been crying out, God, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. And God says, not only will I not deliver you, it's going to get far, far worse than it is right now. In this scripture, we can see that God intends to raise up an utterly pagan, godless people to come in and destroy the nation. We could be looking at the same thing in America right now. He's doing the same thing in America right now. And by the time we finish this series in a few weeks, you will be able to see it as well. I've been studying this, and God has shown me something. And I get hate mail all the time about, you know, how I'm so, what's the word, anti-American. How I'm so critical of the administration. How I am so, I can't think of anything better than anti-American. And that is so far from the truth. Unpatriotic. That's another one. Folks, I'm as patriotic as you can get. I believe 100% in the American dream. I believe 100% that America has been blessed by God in our foundation. That God has been guiding our nation up until about the late 1950s to early 1960s when we as a nation made the decision 
to reject God and embrace humanism. And that began the downfall where we have arrived at the bottom of the barrel today. We're not under the barrel. We're at the bottom. Under the barrel comes next. But I'm getting ahead of myself. God has shown me some things that actually connects America to Israel. Things that no other nation can say. They can't claim it because it's not true. But when we look at what connects America to the nation of Israel, you're going to see these close ties that the Obama administration has been trying to sever and cut. We have forsaken God just like Israel forsook God in the days of Habakkuk. You'll be able to see all of this by the time we finish with this study. But for right now, just trust me, okay? Just trust me that I will get there. I'll walk you through this step by step on what the future holds for America and how the Christians can prepare for it. We won't be able to stop it. But we can prepare ourselves and we can prepare our families to escape it. Amen. And we need to take as many people with us in the rapture as possible. We, our job is to teach others that judgment is coming to America and how to prepare to escape it. Now, like I said, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to the book of, of Habakkuk. What I just talked about, what is happening in America, is also the problem in Habakkuk's day. Number one, why does it appear God is inactive? Why doesn't God respond to the cries of his people? Secondly, when he does, why does he answer that way? And through these 11 verses, we learn three great truths about the way God does act. God's ways, first of all, are mysterious. Secondly, they are really misunderstood. And thirdly, they are moral. And everything he does. God's ways are mysterious, misunderstood, but yet moral. Amen. So that's the basic outline we're going to go through the rest of today. First of all, let's notice how God's ways are mysterious. Now, I've hinted at this already. First of all, notice that he is mysterious in action. It's strange how that God is silent during very serious circumstances. And we can stand there and we say, well, why, why did God let Israel get this far gone? Why didn't God smash those idols right away when they were put up? Why did he allow false prophets to rise up and lead the nation astray? Why didn't he just strike them dead on the spot? Why did God allow Israel to deteriorate to that point? Why didn't God maintain the purity of Israel? And we can also ask ourselves the same questions in reference to the church today. Why has God let liberalism come into the church? Why has he allowed it? Why doesn't he strike those false teachers? Why doesn't he strike them dead on the spot when they utter their blasphemy and their denial of the faith? Why does God allow so many wrong things to be done? 
Why, in the context of the church, does God allow people under the name of Jesus Christ to commit the atrocities that have been committed? So many churches in our world that name the name of Jesus Christ and under the name of Jesus Christ are doing absolutely unbelievable things. Why does God allow that? If God is really God, why doesn't he keep a pure church? Why does he let this happen? Not only that, why hasn't God answered yes to all of my prayers? I pray in faith. How long have we been praying for revival to come to America? Answer that question. How long have we been praying for revival to come to the whole world? Why doesn't God answer yes? Why is there no revival? We pray for decades, and it seems like God doesn't hear. Why? Why doesn't God bring America to its knees? Why doesn't God take these people who've turned against him and turn them toward him? And you've probably asked in your own heart, on an individual basis, why does God allow so-and-so to get sick? Why doesn't God heal them? Or you've asked, why doesn't God save that person that I've prayed for month after month after month after month? Why? Why is God silent in the midst of all the atrocities committed under his name in his church? Why did he allow it in Israel? Why does he allow the world to go on like it's going on right now? If he's really God, why doesn't he fix it? Why does God allow corrupt politicians to be the leaders of this nation? Why doesn't God just strike them all dead right now as they lead the, before they can lead this nation astray? Why doesn't he raise up a righteous president to lead us, one who fears God first and foremost and worries about politics second? Why? Why doesn't God do that? You see, God's ways are mysterious, aren't they? His inaction is mysterious. Amen. And secondly, his unexpected providences are mysterious as well. And the second thing we discover from Habakkuk is that God sometimes gives very unexpected answers to our prayers. And this really shook Habakkuk. It shook him up. For a long time, God never seemed to answer him. Then, all of a sudden, God answered. In Habakkuk's mind, God was answering all along. But he was not answering the way Habakkuk wanted him to do it. And finally, God answered. And his answer was even more mysterious than before he answered. Because you see, Habakkuk thought he knew what Israel needed. He thought it was my, well, here's what Israel needs, God, just in case you don't know. God, number one, God, just do it this way, it'll be okay. They need revival, God. And secondly, after that, you, after you kind of put them in their place a little bit and revival begins, then turn them around and turn them back towards you, God. That's what they need. They just need a little whipping and then they'll get smashed down and punished a little bit. And then they need a great revival in the land, God. And they'll turn back to you. And after that, everything will be all right. 
But you see, God had other plans for Israel. John Newton said he felt he wanted something better in his spiritual life. So at one time he cried out to God for a deeper knowledge of God. He cried out for a deeper understanding of his own spiritual light and he besought God that he might have a new dimension in his Christian experience. I know some people have prayed like that. I've done it. You probably have too. You know what happened to him? He expected some wonderful vision of God or some dramatic blessing from heaven. Do you know what he got instead? Instead, he had an experience in which for months, God seemed to be a million miles away. God seemed to abandon John Newton to Satan himself. He was tempted and tried beyond his comprehension. The exact opposite of what he was asking for. But you see, God had allowed Newton to go into the depths of suffering in order to teach him how to depend entirely on him. Only then, when Newton had learned his lesson, did God bring him out and bless him. Amen? And there's a Bible principle there, that suffering always precedes glory. Do you know that? Suffering always precedes glory. And I suppose the best illustration of that is football practice. Some of the guys know about that. Amen. As I look back on that, you know, you live for the glory on Friday night in high school or Saturday in college. Oh, the suffering through the week. Sometimes two-day practices in the heat and the humidity and over and over and over again, the same drills. But there's some basic principles in life where suffering also precedes glory. No man ever attained anything in life but what he suffered through some sacrificial hours to take himself to that glory. Even, you know, politicians today, I have friends that have achieved political office on the state level, and they spend days knocking doors, meeting people. They put in hours and hours and hours every day shaking hands, asking questions, see what's on the minds of the people. They are agonizing through this. They don't want to do it that way. They would much sooner just put their name on the ballot and then kick back in their house and on election night win. But they know that they have to do these things if they can adequately convince people they can represent their interests. They have to do these things so that they can adequately represent these people's interests because they know because they talk to these people. Amen. So there are basic principles in life where suffering precedes glory. No man ever yet attained anything in life but that he first suffered through some sacrificial hours in order to put himself in position to receive that glory. No man ever became effective no matter ever became astute in any dimension of education until he sacrificed hours and hours and hours of careful study. No man ever became a well-trained athlete who performs well at the big moment unless he disciplined and sacrificed through the hours and hours and hours that nobody ever saw. How many of you ever asked God to make you suffer? 
How many of you ever gotten down on your knees and said, God, make me suffer? Or literally, smash me down, God. Just crush me so I can know you better. Have you ever prayed that? I never. I don't want to. Because I believe that type of prayer, God would answer very quickly if you prayed that way. Amen. But what do we pray? Lord, protect me. Lord, keep me safe as I go over here. Lord, bless our family. Lord, watch over us. Lord, take care of us. Lord, do this or do that. You know, keep the little wall of protection around us. Lord, don't ever let anything happen to us. Is that the way we pray? Is that the way you pray? I think it is, isn't it? Now, does it make sense to you why some things are happening? You see, there's a basic biblical principle that says what precedes glory? Suffering. That's a spiritual principle. Suffering always precedes glory. But we don't pray for that, do we? All we want is the glory. You want to know something? Someday Israel is going to be glorified. Did you know that? It's in the Bible. Someday they are going to reign with Christ who is their Messiah, aren't they? For a thousand years. They're going to have the glory, but first they're suffering. Someday the church is going to be glorified, isn't it? In that day, we will meet Jesus Christ in our glorified bodies, but not before we go through some suffering while in this world. We all like to write our own prescription to our own answers to our own prayers, don't we? We pray in the back of our minds and say, God, uh, just in case you're stuck for a plan, here's an idea. But we forget the fact that God sometimes makes things an awful lot worse before they get any better. You don't hear that preached much in a lot of churches today, do you? How many faith churches would empty out if the preacher got up there and said, God will answer your prayers, every single one of them, right after he crushes you to the point where you feel all is lost? I don't think that would sell very many CDs or increase their offerings and collections, would it? Just remember that God may do the exact opposite of what you're expecting or what you need. But don't forget, it might look like the backside of a Persian rug to you, but on the other side, the side that God sees, it's a beautiful, glorious tapestry. What we're seeing today as we look at things is the backside. What we're seeing today in the world is the suffering that the world is going through in order to get ready for the glory that's about to emerge. Glory to God. Shout amen, somebody. You know that someday this world is going to perish. It's going to be in the hands of Jesus Christ and the lion's going to lie down with the lamb. The little child's going to play in a snake pit and never be bitten. And do you know that the nations are going to go in and out and see Jesus Christ reigning on the throne of David and Israel is going to be glorified and the church is going to be glorified and Christ is going to be glorified but not before suffering comes. 
God is beating this world down in our eyes right now. Judgment is beginning right now. We see it happening right now. And it will last up until the time that Christ comes in final judgment. Until the day this world is going to be under the judgment of God in order to get it ready for the glory. Amen. Glory. Hallelujah. Why should I deserve anything that Jesus never had? It was needful for him to suffer before he could be glorified. What makes you think you're so special you don't have to do the same thing? Things are going to get worse and worse. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, well, verse 13 or so, Paul says to Timothy, Evil men shall wax, what? Worse and worse in the last days. And we start reading prophetic scriptures. And we're going to get into a series on prophetic themes for today, either during this series or it'll be the one following the study of Habakkuk and revival in America. But we'll follow the Lord's leading on that. But the end times are about to emerge. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. We read about that in the end time. There's going to be lawlessness. In Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul says that the spirit of lawlessness is going to run wild in the end times. Amen? We read that in the end times there's going to arise false religions called by Paul in his letter to Timothy, doctrines of evil. Doctrines of devils, I'm sorry. We read that in the last days there's going to be apostates who go around denying the Lord that bought them in 2 Peter 2. We read that things are going to get worse and worse and worse, not better. And I'm telling you right now, if you're spending your time praying for peace, forget it. Pray for peace in the hearts of men, not peace in the world. There will never be peace in this world until Jesus returns. And if you're praying to the end of all wars, forget it. There's not going to be an end to war until Jesus comes. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse before they get any better. The lines are being drawn right now for the battle of Armageddon. Russia's ready, the king of the north. Egypt and the Arab states are ready, the king of the south. From the east, the great red Chinese guard now numbering 200 million exactly as prophesied in the book of Revelation. They're ready. The Russians started a seven-year project to dam up the Euphrates. The Bible says the Euphrates will be dried up while the kings of the east march across it. This world is getting ready and there is not going to be any peace. It's only going to get worse and worse before it gets any better. And so sometimes we think we know how God should work this, how he should answer our prayers. He's not doing it the way we think he should. And in verse 6, he told Habakkuk, I'm raising up the Chaldeans to judge Israel. So God's ways are mysterious. His unexpected providences are mysterious. Certainly his instruments are mysterious. And when he talks about the Chaldeans, that must have really been a problem for Habakkuk because the Chaldeans were one of the most despised peoples in his day. They were absolutely pagan, totally godless. 
I believe God is telling us today he is raising up the Muslims as his instrument to bring judgment on America today. That does not mean the God of the Muslims is our God. He's not. It means that God is not going to stop the Muslims who are led by the spirit of Satan. He's allowing them to gain these advances because they are operating on his agenda to bring judgment to America and to the world, to show up and show off, if you would, when he has Jesus make his grand entrance, putting them all down with the sword of his mouth. Amen. So if God wants to use the Chaldeans, he can do it. He can do it. I mean, God has used all sorts of strange instruments to bring his purpose to to pass. We talked about earlier, he used an ass in Numbers 22. He used a coin and a fish's mouth and perhaps other occasions that we don't have time to go into. Amen? Because we're starting to run out of time. One prime example of that, though, I find in Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. If you have your Bible, you can look at that. Isaiah 44. Here you have the incident of Israel, the prophecy regarding Israel being released from Babylonian captivity. In Isaiah 44, about verse 28, there's the prophecy about Cyrus. This was many, many, many years before Cyrus was even born, let alone raised up as king. God says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd? God says that Cyrus, a pagan king, is his shepherd. And he shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation can be laid. Then look at this first verse, uh, the next chapter, verse 45. Chapter 45, verse 1. Not only does he call him a shepherd, he says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Cyrus was a pagan king going back to the days of Habakkuk. Cyrus was a pagan king, yet God said, I'm going to use Cyrus to free Israel from bondage. And he carried it even further by saying, Cyrus is my shepherd. He's my anointed one. I'll tell you what, God used some strange instruments to carry out his judgment, doesn't he? One perhaps very strange instrument is the Antichrist, who's definitely, believe it or not, being used or is going to be used by God in the tribulation, to do exactly what God wants him to do. Not only that, the same is true about the kings of the north. All the parts that are involved in prophecy and tribulation are being used by God to bring his will to pass. I mean, you could read Ezekiel 38. There's one little phrase in there. It talks about the kings of the north coming against Israel. It says God will put hooks in their jaws and bring them down. God literally brings the kings of the north against his nation, Israel. Why? God uses strange instruments in his plan. He has to crush Israel to the point where they, the only thing they can do is cry out to God. They are no longer capable of doing anything on their own. Then Jesus returns. So if Israel is dependent on the United States, what does God have to do to the United States of America? He's got to crush us to the point where we can't come and help Israel. That'll go over real good in church today, won't it? Today, because of the New Testament, we know how it all ends, don't we? Habakkuk didn't know. 
He was in a far worse dilemma than we are. We know God is letting things happen to prepare the world for judgment because after judgment comes, what? Glory. The kingdom of God arise. Praise God. The worst judgment this world will ever see is in the tribulation. In Matthew 24, Jesus says there's nothing like it since the beginning of time. Nothing like it. Following that tremendous wrath of God that he's going to pour out, immediately, immediately following it is the glorification of Christ, of Israel, and of the church. Amen. So God's ways are mysterious. His inactions mysterious. His unexpected providences are mysterious. And certainly his unusual instruments are mysterious. As a result, secondly, God's ways are misunderstood. i got to hurry now. Not only mysterious, but misunderstood. There's two different groups of people that misunderstand God's ways. First of all, careless religious people misunderstand his ways. In Matthew 7, you can read about the many very religious people that will be at the judgment seat, right? They're going to say, Lord, Lord, here we are. And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You're going to be many or there you're going to see very many people who were religious but careless, godless. Godless religious people. Look at verse 5. Behold, among the nations will regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe even though it's told to you. These religious Israelites didn't believe the message that God gave them. They did not believe it. Israel would not believe it. No matter what God did, they never believed the prophets. They did not believe that their God would ever allow the temple to be destroyed the first time or the second time. Many in America do not believe that God would ever allow this nation to be overthrown, ever. But that's not what God says, is it? Matthew 21, you have one of the saddest parables in all the Bible. I'm just going to refer to it. The man who had the vineyard. He brought people in and his servants would come to collect the harvest and the people would kill the servants. Finally he said, I'll put my own son in there. Surely they won't kill him. What do they do? They killed the son. That is a graphic illustration of the fact no matter who God sends to Israel, they always did the same thing to them. They never believed God. They would never believe God. And God said, judgment. Judgment, judgment, judgment. The prophets kept crying, judgment, judgment, judgment. Nobody believed them. Yet they fancied themselves to be the religious people. There are people like that today in America. There are people in churches today, liberal churches, sitting around singing little hymns and listening to little spiritual thoughts dripping off the lips of these preachers who carelessly sit there thinking that religion is going to protect them and ignore again and again and again the scriptures that talk about judgment, judgment, judgment. Just to show you how they do this, look at 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to see a characteristic of careless religious people. 2 Peter 3. I got like three minutes left. Let's see, verse 4. Well, really, verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in, what? The last days. Scoffers, walking after their own lust. And here it comes in verse 4. It says, what? Where is the promise of his coming? This is always, always, always the attitude of the apostate. 
They deny the deity of Christ, and secondly, they always deny the second coming. They reject every scripture that talks about judgment. They sit in their churches day after day, week after week, year after year, sitting in their schools and their seminaries and all this, and reject all of the scripture that is so explicit about judgment. You want to hear the brilliance of their argument? They'll shock you. Listen to verse 4. Listen to this logic in verse 4. Here's what they For since the fathers all died, all things continued as they were from the beginning. Isn't that brilliant? You know what they're saying? Well, he'll never come because he never has. See, I'll never die because I haven't died yet. How stupid is that? They told Noah, it's not going to rain because it's never rained. God said, my spirit will not always, what? Strive with man. It did rain. Judgment did come. It says here in verse 5, how can anybody be stupid enough to believe that kind of logic? Because verse 5 explains it. This is what? They are willingly ignorant. They want to be stupid on this point. They don't want to buy judgment, do they? They don't want anything to do with judgment. We have the same kind of people here with us today. Not in America. Other nations might be judged, but we know him, so it will not happen here. They continue to deny scriptural evidence that judgment is coming. Amen? I could go on and on. We'll continue this again next week. But I want you to see something in the last minute or so that we have. What God permits in the church, what God permits in the world is related to his coming kingdom. And it's going to be established. The principle is the same. Before the glory, there must always be suffering. So don't stumble at world events that you see in the news. And we've just scratched the surface of this book. We're going to go deeper and deeper into it. But don't stumble at world events. If you're a Christian, just ask yourself, whatever's happening, ask yourself this, how does this relate to the kingdom of God? Ask yourself that if you're a Christian, what is going on now? How does it fit into God's plan to establish his kingdom? If you can't figure it out, why there's conflict in Israel, ask yourself, how does this fit into God establishing his kingdom? If you can't figure out why there's problems in our country or around the world or in your own life, ask how does this fit into God's kingdom? If you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're not part of his kingdom, ask yourself this. What is God trying to tell me? What is he saying? If you've never accepted Jesus as the Lord of your life or a Savior, allow his sacrifice to pay for your sins, say this prayer with me right now. Lord God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've done wrong. And I'm sorry. I repent of my sins, and I ask you right now, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I believe you paid the total price for my sins. Come into my heart, create in me a new man, one that is righteous in the Father's eyes. I make you Lord of my life, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. If you prayed that prayer, email me at Brother Bob at ftfm.org and be blessed in all you do. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. 
Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.